Please go with me to Daniel chapter 9 as we continue our series through the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Duh. Amen. And as a reminder, if you happen to miss any of these messages, please go back and listen. And please listen to them in order. It's very important to do so because if you just try to pick one out, these really connect together over this portion of Scripture, and it's important that you would listen to those all at once. Well, we've covered a lot of ground so far over the last five weeks or messages, and so there's too much to recap. So we're going to read the text. I'll do a short one of what we covered last week, and then we'll get to it. Daniel chapter 9, if you will, please look with me in verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times, and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So remember the importance of these verses. How you interpret these verses will affect the way you interpret prophecy throughout the remainder of the Bible. And so this is a watershed passage, if you will, and you have to decide, is this all about Christ, or does the Antichrist show up somewhere <laughs> And I mentioned last week, it's amazing how such conflicting interpretations can exist. How is it we can have one say Christ and one say Antichrist? I mean, those are two totally different things. And so that's just an amazing thing. But it is interesting. Some see Antichrist in verses 26 and 27. There's a group who sees Christ throughout the entire passage. I've made it clear that I'm in that group. I think this is all about our Lord. And I made the case last week that Christ is the covenant confirmer of verse 27. Don't change the context. Amen? We hear that all the time. Don't change the context. This is still about Christ, the Messiah, the Prince. And I believe this is what makes the most sense contextually. And there's no reason to force someone to show up who's never even been mentioned yet. And remember, at no point in this passage does it ever say a covenant is broken. And yet, this is the passage that people will go to as their proof text to say, no, the Antichrist makes and breaks a covenant with Israel. It doesn't say anything about a covenant being broken. All it says is that the sacrifice and the oblation shall be caused to cease, which is a result of the covenant being confirmed. And certainly Christ's sacrifice is going to cause the sacrifice and the oblations to cease in God's sight. They will be of no further value after Christ dies in our place. Amen? 
And so there's no need for any more sacrifices. Hallelujah. I think my job's tough now. I couldn't imagine then. Brother Foley would be up here slicing and dicing animals. Amen. (laughs) Verse 27 is saying that this was going to take place in the midst of the 70th week or three and a half years into the 70th week. Remember that from Jesus' baptism unto his crucifixion was three and a half years. This cannot be a coincidence in light of this prophecy here. And when Jesus gave his life for many on the cross, God rent the veil of the temple, indicating that he was done with the old covenant. The sacrifices are over, thank God. Also remember that there's nowhere in Scripture where it ever says the Antichrist, and and let me just get on a quick soapbox, the Bible never uses the phrase the Antichrist. (laughs) I bring that up because people get on to me and say, you don't take it literal. Then stop saying the Antichrist. It doesn't show up in the Bible. (laughs) Well, I'm using that term to help us because we're all used to hearing it. But the man of sin would probably be better. But anyway, I, I digress. Nowhere does it say the Antichrist or any of his various titles ever makes and breaks a covenant with anyone. All of this teaching is just based on an assumption. However, there's ample proof showing Christ confirmed the new covenant, and he's the only covenant confirmer found in the New Testament. I gave you scriptural reasons last week why Christ is the covenant confirmer and how that the covenant being confirmed must be the new covenant which is exactly what Daniel would have been reading about over in Jeremiah when he learned that things were going to last 70 years for the desolations of Jerusalem. And so it makes sense that God is showing Daniel when this is going to happen. And remember that the new covenant is going to tie in and fulfill the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants, which were both said to be everlasting. And those are fulfilled under the new covenant. In Matthew 1.1, our New Testament begins with this the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're being told right away, Christ is the fulfillment of these two covenants. He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. So he is the seed that was promised to Abraham, and he is the king that was promised through David. And we're told this right away. And then Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28, I think all I did, I think I shortened them up there. But And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This fits perfect with Daniel 9.27. And remember, covenant and testament are interchangeable. They're, they're even the same Greek word. Galatians 3, verses 16 through 17. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. That's pretty clear that Christ confirmed a covenant. But you cannot find anything that ever says Any Antichrist ever confirms any covenant. But there's plenty of the show that Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 and 12, they all make it clear Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Remember, that's a better covenant, which is established upon better promises, uh, much better than the old covenant. That's the point. He took away the first that he might establish the second. And it was through the new covenant being confirmed that Christ made an end of sins, 
made reconciliation for iniquity, and brought in everlasting righteousness to all who believe um, upon Him by faith in Christ alone, which is three of the six purposes of this prophecy. So all of the verses I cited last week uh, are in perfect agreement with Daniel 9.27. And again, if you missed any, please go back and listen. Last week was extremely important if you missed it. Um, And so you'd have to listen to that one to get everything and to really understand where I'm going tonight. But so, so far, we've covered 69 and a half of the 70 weeks. So we still have three and a half years um, of, uh, to, uh, to account for here of the 70th week. And that's what we're going to consider tonight. What's the deal with the last three and a half years of the 70 weeks? And then next time we'll cover the rest of verse 27. So I have to go outside of Daniel uh, tonight to do this. But the rest of verse 27 is going to talk about the destruction of, of Jerusalem and the temple and all these things. I believe that occurred in 70 AD. I think that's what verse 27 is referring to. Some people push that way off in the future, still yet in our future. And we'll cover all that as we go. But for tonight, um, we're not going to make it that far. And so, so far, the first three and a half years took us from the baptism of, of Christ all the way to His crucifixion. And so where do the last three and a half years fit? I've made the case these 70 weeks are all consecutive because 70 weeks are determined, it says. They are cut out. They are set aside in history. This is the only prophecy in our Bible where this word is used, determined. It's the only time this word is used in the Old Testament, in the, in the Hebrew. And so this is telling us something important here. These, all 70 of these weeks are determined. Remember, there's no other prophecy in the Bible where there's a stated timeline that there's a gap. None. And so let's not make this one be the only one because we have a preconceived idea of what we want it to say. As a result of uh, these 70 weeks being determined, I've also made the case this prophecy cannot come up short of 70 weeks. All 70 weeks need to come to pass. So before I give you my opinion, I want to give you some common thoughts that are out there. And some of these common thoughts might be more of what's common for people that are kind of in the line of thought that I am. But some will say, so long as this prophecy has been fulfilled sometime within the 70th week, then that's okay. We've reached it. We don't have to fulfill it all because maybe all the purposes have already been fulfilled. And so some people say, well, it doesn't matter if it ends at 69 and a half weeks. For example, when we consider the 70-year Babylonian captivity, does it have to go to 70 years to the day, or does it just have to be at some point in that last year to be fulfilled? And so because of that kind of thinking, some are content to just go ahead and end uh, this prophecy halfway through the 70th week. And uh, I certainly see evidence for this line of thinking. But again, this prophecy is specifically said to be determined. And so therefore, I'm of the opinion we've got to have 490 years, not 486 and a half years. So some place a gap halfway through the last week, and they see the remaining three and a half years fulfilled at some point in the future. One example that people sometimes will consider is that Jerusalem was surrounded at some point in 66. It was destroyed in 70, and depending on the exact dates, that would fit 
a three and a half year period. And we'll cover that when we get to chapter 12. But that's just one of the options some people see. Also very common is that the Revelation mentions three and a half years four times. And you can see Revelation 11, 2 and 3, or Revelation 11, 2 and 3, Revelation 12, 6 and 13, 5. And it'll say 42 months or 1260 days, which in the Hebrew calendar would equal three and a half years. So is there room for fulfillment for the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week in the Revelation? That's what some people speculate. And there are those for which I have a great deal of respect for that believe that the preaching of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 is the fulfillment of the last three and a half years that we have yet to cover. And I would suggest that just because a prophecy shares the same timeline, it doesn't mean they have to be connected. There are a lot of prophecies that have the same time frame. That doesn't mean they're all connected and related. So just because we find three and a half years in the Revelation doesn't mean it has to fit a prophecy from Daniel. And that's just my opinion, but uh, that's how I see it. And I believe the main reason why so many are still trying to find fulfillment in the Revelation is because they have become so conditioned to believe that there's this seven-year period to come and it all is in the book of Revelation. And so we got to find something in Revelation in order not to be a complete whack job. Well, I'm completely off the rails crazy. I don't see it. And so it's, it's got to be consecutive in my opinion. I see no reason to break this up. There's no reason to separate the last three and a half years by some 2,000 years now. And I, I just maintain my position. If the first 69 and a half weeks are consecutive, or even the first 69 for that matter, for those who are looking for a seven-year period, if the first 69 weeks are consecutive, shouldn't the 70th come after 69? Amen? I'm going to, if I live that long, I'm going to turn 70 after I was 69. I'm not going to have a gap of 2,000 years, though that would be pretty cool. (laughs) Amen? Be 69 for 2,000 years. Where am I at? So, to me, they all run consecutively. Now, up to this point, I would say I'm dogmatic on the first 69 and a half weeks. uh, It's taken me years to get to this point. I, I was used to not think this way, and so I understand if you're not in my corner, uh, keep studying it. It's taken me a while to get here. But I would say at this point in my life, I'm now content to say that the first 69 and a half weeks are just as I taught. And um, I feel I've given you ample biblical evidence to support that, at least, whether you agree or not. But what I'm about to suggest to you is only my opinion. You see how that's bolded up there in green? It's only my opinion. It's only my opinion, folks. It's only my opinion. So if it's true that all full 70 weeks run their course consecutively, then for my position to be correct, the last three and a half years should follow the... the, They should be in the 70th week, and they should follow the crucifixion of Christ. And so we're going to consider some events tonight that I think build the case for this position And remember that there were six purposes, six primary things here about this prophecy that are stated there in verse 24. And we've already covered the anointing of the Most Holy. That would be when Christ was baptized and the Spirit anointed Him. And and we covered that at length in a previous message. We covered how Christ's sacrifice made an end of sins. It made reconciliation for iniquity and it brought in everlasting righteousness. And if you're in Christ, you know that to be true. The question you have to ask is, is that 
fulfill Daniel or not? I believe it does. And so we might be able to make the argument that Christ's sacrifice sealed up the vision and prophecy, meaning Christ was the fulfillment of vision and prophecy, which He is. But maybe we shouldn't say that just yet because we still have to deal with the final purpose that we've yet to cover, and that's to finish the transgression. And we might could say, well, when you nail somebody to the cross, you finish the transgression. Possibly, and I'm not against that thought, but if that was the case, why say 70 weeks and not just go with 69 and a half? And um, I covered this a little bit when we were in verse 24. We're going to get a little bit deeper. And so what transgression needed to be finished? So first of all, what is a transgression? According to Strong's Concordance, and, and to do this, i got to repeat some stuff I said in verse 24. So if you're hearing some things and you're going, I think you've already said that before, you're crazy. I know, I, I, I put it back in here so we could reestablish this. According to the Strong's Concordance, the word transgression here means to revolt. It's a breaking away. It's a national, moral, or religious revolt. And so I looked up the word revolt. Amen. I'm just dumb like that. And in Webster's 1828 dictionary, it says to fall off or turn from one to another, to renounce allegiance and subjection to one's prince or state, to reject the authority of a sovereign. So in my opinion... The transgression which needed to be finished was Israel's transgression of rejecting God's rule over them. And this started back in in 1 Samuel. You'll remember there, we read this back in verse 24, but it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord, and the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. That's the transgression. That's the revolt, right? They are turning from one to another. And and there's no denying that Israel was guilty of transgressing the Lord. They were revolting against the Lord. And they still possessed the same spirit when Christ arrived. John 5.43, Jesus said, I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another come in his own name, him ye will receive. And then Jesus described their attitude through a parable in Luke chapter 19, and I can't read the whole parable, but it's interesting that he's speaking this right as they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And then, and then Jesus gives this parable, and I just read you this one excerpt, Luke 19, 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And of course... They rejected Him on crucifixion day. But they cried out, Away with Him, away with Him, crucify Him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. That's a revolt. That's a transgression. And there's no disputing Israel was guilty of this. They renounced their allegiance and subjection to Christ. They did not want him as their king. 
And I believe this is the transgression that needed to be finished. But in order to finish the transgression, there would need to be a complete rejection of Christ. And like I said just a minute ago, maybe this had its fulfillment. I mean, if you crucify somebody, you've rejected them, right? But I think Jesus was being merciful to him. And if Christ's crucifixion finished the transgression, then let's not make this a 70-week prophecy. I already mentioned that as well. God was going to give them another chance after He resurrected because He said, I'll give you one sign. Remember that? I'll give you one sign, the sign of my resurrection. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so Jesus will be in the heart of the earth. So He said, I'll give you one sign, and that would be Him rising again. And if the unbelieving Jews and religious Jews didn't receive Him before His death, maybe they would receive Him after Jesus resurrected, after this sign. And so we're going to consider some early sections here of the book of Acts. Remember, before Christ's death, all the disciples of Christ forsook Him and fled. All of them. And they went into hiding. And they were fearful for their lives. But after three days, we know Christ rose victoriously from the grave. Say amen right there. And those who were once frightened after the the power of the Holy Ghost came upon them. I think I've skipped one here, sorry. So he arose. He He was showing up 40 days after his resurrection. How cool would that be, amen? Well, over there in Acts chapter 1, he's going to ascend and the power of the Holy Ghost will come upon them um, and, and they're going to be bold in their preaching. And they're going to preach the one that they had earlier forsook. It was another sign that, man, this is real. Because it doesn't make sense that a people who went into hiding after their leader got killed would all of a sudden just be bold in their preaching and say, yeah, go ahead and kill me too. Right? Something happened. What happened? Christ rose again. And so they're, they're empowered. And then in, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, they're, they're preaching Christ. In chapter 5, they were beaten for preaching Christ. And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. And daily in the temple, that's where they kept getting arrested. Daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. But then chapter 6 comes, and there's a clash, a major clash between what we would just go ahead and call Christianity. They weren't calling it that yet. But there was a clash between Christianity and the Jews' religion. By the way, when the Bible mentions the Jews' religion, it's speaking about the religious council, those elders and chief priests and scribes that made up the council. They were followers of a corrupt version of Judaism where they had added the oral traditions of men and that had superseded what God had given them in the law. And so it was a corrupt form. You might be familiar with the term the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 6, they did not like Stephen. He was full of faith and power. He did great wonders and miracles among the people. And there arose certain of the synagogue which, which hated what he had to say. But in Acts 6.10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suburned men and said, we have uh, heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And 
they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, speaking of Stephen, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And they brought Stephen before the council because he preached Christ. And what he said was true. Amen? Jesus did say the temple would be destroyed. We'll look at that a little more next time. Jesus did fulfill the law. And Jesus did change the customs that Moses delivered. And then in chapter 7, the high priest asked Stephen, Are these things so? And Stephen went on to preach a tremendous message about Christ before the council. And because he wasn't real concerned about who would answer the altar call, he closed his message with this, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Can you imagine him preaching this? Man, I get in trouble just because I preach one message. This guy's like getting it. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Boom! When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed on them with their teeth. Then they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Now what's important about all of this in relation to Daniel 9 is the apostles had already preached Christ to the council. God used Stephen to preach Christ to the council one last time. But they refused the resurrected Lord. And one could make the argument Stephen came in the likeness of Moses because his face was shining like Moses when he came down from the mount. And I think it's significant that Stephen died in the likeness of Christ. Some of the same words were said. And I think all this is very important. He said, receive my spirit, lay not this sin to their charge. But none of it phased the council. And they stopped their ears to the message. And it's important to notice how they ran upon him with one accord. The entire council is now against this. They're they're in one accord. They're fed up with the message of Jesus. You remember earlier in Acts chapter 5, how... Gamaliel said, give this movement time. If it be of God, you can't stop it. Remember all that? That's gone now. With one accord, they're coming upon them. They they are done with this. It is time to take matters into their own hands. And they do. And they kill Stephen. And it interests me, out of all the martyrs of the early church, Stephen gets the most attention. He definitely gets the most detail. And it's as if God is making sure we take note of Stephen's death. And here's where I'm going with this. From this point forward, 
we never read where the council gets another gospel presentation and an opportunity to repent again. I believe this finished the transgression. It completed the total rejection of Christ. They stopped their ears for the last time and God will now turn to the Gentiles. And it was during Stephen's stoning where Saul of Tarsus makes his first appearance. At the end of chapter 7, we saw they were casting their, the, two, the witnesses. That's how they would do it in the law. The witnesses would cast the first stones and they took off their coat and laid it at Saul's feet so they could throw those stones at Stephen. And then chapter 8 opens with this as we covered on Sunday night. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. And then chapter 9 opens with this. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were, of, uh, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. But something incredible was about to happen to Saul. Amen. In chapter 9, Saul is gloriously converted. And God's purpose for him is going to go to be to go and reach the Gentiles. The Lord calls for Ananias to go get Saul of Tarsus, and naturally Ananias is like, what? You want me to go get the guy that's been killing people like me? Yeah. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In Acts chapter 10, not only is Paul called to go to the Gentiles, Peter receives a vision to go to the Gentiles. And he's a good Baptist. He became very hungry. Amen. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. Boy, this will scare a lot of, a lot of Baptists right here. And saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou, un, uh, call not thou common. And then after the vision, Peter is told by the Spirit to go to Cornelius' house, a Gentile. And he said unto them, You know how that it is unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. And very long story short, the Holy Ghost came upon the Gentiles that day. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then chapter 11, it opens with this. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. And in Acts eleven eighteen, when they... Oop, where'd it go? 
sorry, when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And then in chapter 13, Paul goes to Antioch in Pisidia and he preaches Christ in the synagogue. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of, I think I took some of this out. When the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light to the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. And from this point forward, the gospel now goes primarily to the Gentile because they were willing to receive it and they did. Just consider the 13 epistles between the books of Acts and Hebrews, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, who was half Jew, half Greek, which makes him a Gentile, Titus, who was a Greek, makes him a Gentile, and Philemon, who many believe was a Gentile, all written by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Gentiles which he said in Romans eleven thirteen, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. And then one last verse from the book of Acts towards the end of the book. Acts 28, 28. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. Boy, that's great, preacher. Why are you covering all this? I think the covering, my opinion, I think the, the stoning of Stephen the call of Saul, the gospel going to the Gentiles. Uh, I believe this makes the most sense that the 70th week came to an end somewhere during that time frame. And I have to say somewhere in that timeline because it cannot be proven. There are no dates given. Some place Stephen's stoning only one year after Christ's crucifixion. There are those who place it approximately three and a half years. I don't know if they're searching for fulfillment. I'm just telling you what I studied. But none can be proven dogmatically, so you can do with all this information as you see fit. Another reason why this is important to cover is in relation to the Gentiles and this prophecy in Daniel 9. The rest of verse 27 that we're going to cover later, it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D., and although, like I mentioned, some are pushing that further into the future. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation 
and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. This has everything to do with Gentile dominance over Israel. And again, we'll look at this more next time. Luke 21, verses 20 and 24, Jesus said, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive in all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So there's a lot to get into here. But in conclusion, biblically speaking, it seems to me the stoning of Stephen finished the transgression, the total rejection of Christ by the nation of Israel. The stoning of Stephen, the salvation and calling of Saul, and the gospel going to the Gentiles, it seems to mark the end of the 70 weeks in my mind. It also seems to mark the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. Though some will say, no, the times of the Gentiles started way back with Nebuchadnezzar when he started to take over Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Now, let me be clear. You don't have to agree with me on what I gave you tonight to be in this church. Amen? You don't have to agree with every little detail on this. In fact, you don't have to agree with me on most of what I've taught out of this so far um, to be in this church. But for, where, for what it's worth, this is where I'm at. And that's just where I'm at. And so you can be where you're at. Amen? Um, I've always said this. There are two things we must be dogmatic about. And if you're going to join up, you, you do have to believe this. Christ is coming again, and His children are not appointed unto wrath. Amen. However He shakes out all the details, <laughs> I, I hate to praise the Southern Baptist, amen, but um, I grew up Southern Baptist. I'm allowed to pick on them. I grew up Southern Baptist. Um, yeah, amen, brother. As much as I, I, I hate to do that, but I think sometimes their statement of faith has it the best. And all of theirs, they have that one statement of faith that says, God in his own way and in, in his own time will bring about everything. Amen. <laughs> Amen. God will bring about everything. And so we'll, we'll see. When we get to heaven, if he gives us a little in-your-face time, we'll see. But next time, we'll consider the rest of verse 27. Until then, would you pray with me, please?